the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It was a number of years ago I had the opportunity to sit down with my dad and have kind of one of those adult-to-adult, father-to-son, heart-to-heart talks. And I I had to admit to him, albeit perhaps a bit begrudgingly, that I was amazed at how how smart he had become down through the years. It seems like when we're teenagers, our parents just don't know a thing, and we have all the answers. Then as we grow up and begin to get into this world of life and have our own experiences and eventually go on to raise our own families, we come to find out that Dad, in fact, wasn't all that dumb after all. In fact, he was a pretty smart guy. We set that as kind of the tone for the beginning of our conversation today with a voice that's certainly familiar to KFAX listeners. Um, in addition to his responsibilities as the co-host of the uh, Daily Focus on the Family broadcast uh, heard here on KFAX, uh, he's also got a, a budding writing career going on, and uh, one of his latest books is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, and the great advice just in time for Father's Day. Pleased to have join us on the program this afternoon, the co-host of Focus on on the family's daily broadcast and uh, author, and perhaps most importantly, father and husband, John Fuller. John, great to have you with us. Craig, thank you for uh, inviting me, and you're right. Uh, of all the titles I've had throughout the years, Daddy is the best one. And isn't that amazing, you know, because often we guys identify ourselves certainly as husbands and as fathers, but then, of course, we have to get the career in there. And and, and so much of our workday, of course, uh, 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes, uh, is wrapped up in our identity that oftentimes we fail to recognize that perhaps one of the most important roles we have, certainly when it comes to the job that God has given us, is that of father. It is, and it's an irreplaceable job. I mean, it, it, guys don't want to admit this, but we're for pretty much replaceable at work. I mean, there aren't many of us who are indispensable and irreplaceable. But at home, uh, my kids have one dad, and that's it. And um, and if I don't show up for that job, if I don't throw myself into that one with as much energy and enthusiasm as I do uh, my real day job, if you will, or uh, my golf game, or whatever the side hobby is, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss out on a great deal of of the richness of the journey of parenting, and my kids are going to be shorted too, and they're not going to get the kinds of things that I can give them anywhere else. Now you speak to this with some degree of authority as a father of six. Um, when you first got into this, um, when uh, you and, and your wife Dina were about to have the first child, after a, a great deal of effort, we might add. 
Uh, I'm sure, John, there must have been a sense of fear and, and, and amazement and, and a little bit of trepidation in all of us. But then, too, was there a little bit of an idea that, you know, this can't be all that difficult? I mean, after all, you know, my dad raised me and I didn't turn out all that bad. <laughs> How did you know? Yeah, and, and let me say that if I have any expertise, it's not because I've written a book. It's because for 20 years I've been running into brick walls and stubbing my toe and making mistakes left and right as a father. So uh, my expertise is probably probably born more out of failure than anything else. Um, no, I think I think I was guilty of that, uh, to answer the question directly. I, I thought um, kind of naively that, yeah, this is one more thing that we do. We become dads and that you can just kind of check that off the list or move on, and that's not really the case. Uh, it was a lot of change. It was like a Scud missile coming out and just blowing up my world. Uh, all of my expectations about how the relationship with my wife was going to continue on, um, my expectations about my job performance, my expectations about hobbies, all of that was out the window when Dakota was born uh, almost 24 years ago now. It was, it, was, it was a change, and it was a hard change, but it was a good change as I learned to navigate it and deal with it. And I guess navigation, I'm glad you choose that word, John, because some, so often I think some guys think that, well, I'll just go out and take a couple of parenting classes or read a book or think what my dad would have done and either copy it or in some cases think of that, what dad would have done and do the opposite. You know, But a lot of this is really navigation, isn't it? I mean, there, it, it, the baby didn't show up. I mean, the hospital bill came along with it, but there was no manual, was there? Yeah, they, the kids don't read those books anyway, and so it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it, it, the, first the first chapter of my book is called Great Expectations, because I think that really does, that's where we have to start. As a new dad, we have to get our expectations in order and just ask ourselves, as I go into this, what, what exactly am I forgetting? And, and what are some of my hang-ups about this? I mean, most guys don't want to fail, and most of us, I think, feel uh, uh, that failure is imminent as a new dad, because uh, the, the, the baby doesn't react like I thought babies reacted, and this is a lot harder than I thought, and I'm now sleep-deprived, and my wife is sleep-deprived, and she's got hormonal changes coming off of the pregnancy if she gave birth. Um, there are all sorts of communication issues. Um, man, I, this thing just has loser written all over it, so I don't run toward it, I run away from it. Well, if you expect it's going to be hard, if you expect it's going to be a, a great lifelong journey to be a dad, but that it's a wonderfully rich experience, and it's, uh, it's a great gift from God to entrust a child into your care, and that this little kid's going to be used by God to chisel all the rough edges off of me and make me more like Jesus, then it's, it's a whole different ballgame then. Now, your book, John, uh, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, really uh, culminates in your years of experience being the father of six uh, and being able to kind of help uh, first-time dads in particular uh, get the priorities straight and maybe learn them a thing or two, as my, my grandmother used to say. Mm, yeah, One of the points that you mentioned very early on is uh, babies are easy. I mean, sometimes, you know, outside of the 3 o'clock feedings and the interrupted sleep and the, the major change in lifestyle that suddenly happens, uh, we get used to it early on and then begin to think, oh, well, it can only get easier. It can't get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, it sounds like a voice of experience right there. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I think every season has been good. My, my two oldest are adults. They're out of the house. And uh, my third child that just turned 18, we still have 16, 13, and 8-year-old in the house. So I'm still living with a lot of younger and, and teenage uh, things. I've got to say that, that your babies are probably one of the easier stages. Um, I hate telling a new dad that because at times it feels like this is so hard. Um, but the rewards increase as the difficulty increases. And uh, sometimes I'll tell someone, I have three teenage daughters in my home. Pray for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I also follow that up real quickly with, a, you know, I love those girls so much. And I'm not sure there's anything better than when they say goodnight, they come up and they want their hug and their little kiss on the forehead. That to me is uh, that's that's priceless right there i can't buy that kind of affection and love from a child and and those teen years are precious when the girls still come my way and, and look for my advice and seek out their daddy so every season is great babying is hard because you're especially if you're first time dad if you're first time dad because you don't know what to expect and how to how to deal with all the the issues that newborns have but once you get the hang of it it's pretty easy but it does become, as we move along, there are certain complexities that are inherent to all of this, aren't there? I mean, number one, obviously, for growing families, you're adding not just child number one, who now has grown and gone through the baby years and maybe is either a toddler or a little bit further along. Now along comes child number two. Now there's a balancing act between the two. And so as there is the, the exponential growth of the family and the responsibilities, one of the other things, too, that I think oftentimes, John, becomes a major hang-up for, for younger dads that are kind of still figuring all of this out is we see then too an exponential growth in a lot of the demands outside of the house meaning that we're beginning to hit the pace in the career and the job and maybe we're moving from you know entry-level positions to middle and upper management more responsibility then too we're thinking well gee the family's getting bigger there are more demands on my time more people that are counting upon me i've got to bring the bread in because you know this is not just child rearing expenses someday there's going to be education costs and weddings and all of these things and so suddenly in addition to a bigger demand for our time in the house as husband and father, there are oftentimes, too, John, lots of demands for our time and attention outside of the house. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Craig, because um, I've observed the very same thing, and it's a concern to me, and I, well, I've experienced the very same thing. Um, you know, we had one, and then two, and then three children, and uh, the responsibilities at work were great. Uh, I mean, there's, there, I'm working at a ministry. I know that, that, uh, that it's, it's valuable for me to pour into kingdom work. And yet I feel the tug at home, and, and at the same time, uh, I've got single friends uh, who are in their 20s and 30s, and they're doing things like running marathons, and I want to do that. And There is a jumble of stuff going on there. And uh, if I can share just personally, I, I came face-to-face -face with priorities and with the challenges of work and career and, uh, when my oldest was about eight. He, uh, he was really... Uh, acting up, and we were having a hard time with some of his some of his behaviors, and uh, so much so that we sought out a counselor here at Focus on the Family. We talked to one of the Focus counselors for about an hour, and uh, she she listened to us and asked some questions, and then she turned to me and she just said, "John, I think your son is acting up because he wants more of you. Mm. You're not home very much. 
you're working on your master's degree, and that's on top of a pretty intense full-time job working on the radio programming at Focus on the Family. So, um, you know, you just need to throttle back. And I, I, I was nailed. <laughs> I mean, come, come on, I work at a family ministry. I know family stuff, but I was guilty of doing too much outside the home. And, and some of that was a search for significance, if I can be honest with you. Some of that was a need to kind of, you know, hold my, pull my weight and hold my own against peers who were doing some things. But some of it was, uh, I think, a right passion to, to get equipped to do the next things that I thought God had for us as a family in the kingdom. Uh, still, I had to just reset and say, wait a minute, what's really important here? And I had to kind of push back on some things so that I could spend more time with my son because he needed me. And he was only eight once. Uh, if I missed that window, he was on to nine and then ten. It, uh, I would have missed him altogether if I wasn't careful. And that's such a critical point. And I want to pause right here because th- this is a point that needs to be really underscored. Because as John Fuller points out, it is easy to kind of get caught up in not only the striving for significance, but you feel like you're doing things that are of critical importance for the family, bringing home the bacon, all of that. And yet this time only comes once, and it comes so rapidly. And for a lot of guys that might say, well, gee, but what about some time for me? I mean, there's these hobbies that I'm involved with, and I'm trying to work on the golf game, and I've got demands on me, not only at work, but but the men's fellowship and responsibilities as church, as a member of the board of deacons. I just want to be able to squeeze it all in together. You get one shot at doing this right, guys. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with John Fuller from Focus on the Family. The book, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, just in time for Father's Day, published by Moody, and you can get it through John's blog. It's easy. Just go to johnfullerblog.com. That's johnfullerblog.com. When we come back, learning to balance the time and prioritize for First Time Dads. It's all the stuff you need to know as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, we're talking today with John Fuller, co-host of Focus on the Family's daily radio broadcast, heard weekday mornings at 9 a.m. with a reprise broadcast at 9 p.m. right here on KFAX. John is also a budding author, and uh, his latest book is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know. Great gift in time for Father's Day. And, of course, the book published by Moody and available directly through John's website. Just check him out at johnfullerblog.com. In addition, of course, to some great resources there, John also spends some time moosing on his experiences and insights and comes at this topic today of parenting with a bit of expertise. Oh, not just because he's the co-host along with Jim Daly uh, there of Focus on the Family, but because he's a father of six and he's got a bit of that road warrior experience. John, just before the break, we were talking about this idea that there become, as the family grows, so many demands on our time. And particularly for the guys out there, we feel as if, gee, we have to bring home the bacon and we're busy developing our careers and we've got our, our sights toward kind of the end game of uh, educational responsibilities. That's going to take a lot of money. Daughters in the family, that's going to take more money for the weddings. So we, we tend to get very busy on the outside with the career, but we want a balanced life. So we volunteer at church and we're on the board of deacons. And in order to relieve some stress, because we don't want to be shooting off, uh, you know, all that pressure at home. Uh, we've got the golf game that we're working on, a hobby or two. We want to get all of this stuff kind of sandwiched into life in the early years, figure we're young and we've got the energy, why not? But there's some flawed thinking with that, isn't there? Mm. 
Well, I think there is, and it has to do with uh, with something we were talking about earlier, and that is the window of time. Listen, if you think that parenting is an 18-year journey and you're done, you're wrong. Uh, there are a couple of things I'd say to that. Uh, that fallacy is is wrong because, A, you really only have 12 to 14 or 15 years to really shape your child because by the time they're 14, 15, 16, they're choosing independence. They're they're longing for adulthood. They're moving toward adulthood, and your influence is going to wax and wane for the next several years. So if you think in terms of window, time of window, it's not 18. It's a little less than that. Plus, um, if you think that at 18 you're done being a dad, you're wrong. My two oldest have moved out. I still stay in touch with them. I love that. That's the payoff for the foundation of the early years, uh, pouring into their lives when they were younger. And not perfectly, but I tried. And so um, if you want an, an ongoing relationship with your child that is rock solid and good and tight and close, and you want that from, oh, say, the time they're 18 until you know, you're in the grave, that's the bigger part of your life with your child when they're an adult and they're saying, see ya, I'm going back home now. Or they're calling you on the phone saying, got to go, the kids are, are needing me. That part of the relationship is what you've got to think of now. You've got to think long-term toward the, 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 uh, the target. Um, I love the psalmist in Psalm 127. He says, children are an arrow uh, that you have, parents. They're an arrow in your quiver. And arrows are not defensive weapons. They're offensive weapons. You take the arrow, you pull it back and you're aiming at a target. You're not hoping it's you know, going to go somewhere. You're planning on where it's going. If we would approach fatherhood that way, I think we'd, we'd have an easier time prioritizing, uh, saying no to some things, and we'd have a bigger impact on our children than we might if we're just busy all the time and chasing the wrong stuff. So focusing, uh, John, so to speak, on the end game, as you say, because let's face it, when we think of how we want our kids to turn out, we have an idea in mind. You know, we want them to be uh, good citizens. We want them to raise a successful family of their own. We want them to, to walk in a relationship with the Lord, maybe be involved in ministry. I mean, we, we all have dreams and visions for our children. So imagine that now when they need you, uh, in those formative years, you got to be there to invest the time. Because, you know, payback can be terrible, John. And later on, it's amazing that if you're not there for your kids when they're younger and they really need you, um, got to set those expectations right because later on, someday you're going to need them. Yeah, well, well, that's a that's a very true point. Um, if I could, uh, I know a guy, and I'll just in the book I call him Mitch, and um, he, he, I was talking to him, and and I asked how the family was doing, and he said, well, not so well, and he shared some things with me that just were very sad. Um, he had one child that just really didn't want anything to do with him, another child who totally disregarded her her parents' wishes, and got married very early. And um, he, was, he was kind of standing thinking, what happened? Well, what happened was he didn't work on the foundation. Um, and if uh, I lived in Texas, and you had to treat the foundation for termites uh, because if you didn't, they were going to chew it up. And, uh, of course, that makes for a really rotten house over time. Uh, you got to pay attention to the foundation, which is those younger years, and you've got to be willing to uh, readjust and, and make sure that you're investing in the part of your child's life that is the most shapeable, the most uh, formative. 
and we know that that the that it's never too late to recapture that relationship to work on it but um you know by the time they're seven eight nine they've got their ideas about who daddy is and um and i hope i'm not throwing guilt at guys i don't want to do that like i said i i myself was uh, confronted with my own uh, shortcomings in this. I just want to encourage a new dad to be thinking in terms of this is some of the most essential time. So right here, this is it. If, if I can get this right, if I can show up and love my child, spend time with my child, show I care to my child, uh, it's possible that I'm going to avoid a situation like Mitch's where they're in their teens, and they don't want anything to do with me. Well, and, you know, I think, John, also, too, the big kind of 30,000 foot high viewpoint on this thing we call life to put it in perspective uh, all of us perhaps have known older people older saints that have gone on to be with the lord and, and others who in their waning moments of life as they're kind of taking the inventory i've never heard anybody about to end their earthly presence here say oh, if i only spent more time at the office gee if i just gone to a few more conferences and meetings and spent more time uh, uh dealing with business then i would be satisfied in life no you never hear them say that instead they say if i'd only been a better husband to my wife a better father to my children if i only spent more time with the kids when they were younger uh, or with my grandkids. I mean, those are the things that if we miss out on it when we have the opportunity the first time around, you don't get a second time at this. You don't. And um, and I, if, I, if I can share a story, my father-in-law passed away uh, at age 89, uh, just a few weeks short of his 90th birthday in December. And um, I, I was asked to speak at his eulogy. And one of the things I said was, I want my kids, I hope I can do this, I want my kids to love me and have as much respect and admiration for me as my wife and her sister and brother had for their daddy. They loved him, and they adored him, and they miss him deeply already. Um, that, that kind of affection and love from a child comes because you were there. And it doesn't have to be you were taking them to the theme park and you were doing all these things that are expensive or time-consuming. But it does mean that you were there consistently offering your attention, meeting that child where he or she is at, recognizing he or she is uniquely wired and needs something different than the rest of them. Um, when you try to meet your kid where they're at, when you simply say, you know, you're more important than me finishing this fence work. Or, yeah, i got to check email for work, but I'm not doing that until you're in bed. Mm -hmm. when, when you say, hey, let's play a game, and they forget about it, and you come back and say, I, I wanted to play a game. That just says to a kid, love, love, love. And, and so it takes conscious choices. And, um, you know, if you do that, um, there is a payoff. A rich payoff. Absolutely. And, of course, another great invaluable resource. Uh, take a little bit of uh, insight from the voice of experience, uh, John Fuller, who's uh, now child number six. So he's got a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, power behind what he says. All detailed inside the pages of a book called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know. The book published by Moody and available uh, through, of course, you can find it at uh, bookstores about the Bay Area. But best place to check it out is on John Fuller's blog. Check him out at John Fuller blog. 
johnfullerblog.com. That's johnfullerblog.com. And uh, catch him weekday mornings and again in the evenings, 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. as co-host of Focus on the Family, heard right here on KFAX. Well, John, we sure appreciate the candor, the insights, and the encouragement for first-time dads. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Craig, thank you for the invitation. And if I may, happy Father's Day. Thank you. You too. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner joins us now, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. And I understand a new survey out, uh, cooperation between Gallup and Phi Delta Kappa, looking at the state and perception of public school education and the public teachers in America. Give us some of the, the highlights, if you would, Gary. Did, did we learn a lot about changing attitudes or changing perceptions based on the, uh, the experiences in places like Wisconsin and Ohio? Oh, we have. And by the way, Craig, thank you very much for allowing us to be on the air with you. We appreciate it. Even though we're the fastest growing national organization of our kind, we're probably still the best kept secret, too. So this is a a thrill to be on the air with you. Uh, Yeah, the Phi Delta Kappa Gallup survey, it it just came out this week, uh, indicates what we as an organization have known for quite a while uh, from our own surveys, that Americans um, are getting very frustrated with and unfortunately, they, they're getting frustrated with teachers, but that is misdirected, that anger, because the, the Gallup survey actually kind of underscored what we know and that Americans really continue to support their teachers, but not their teacher unions. And that disconnect is really giving teachers a black eye. Uh, the survey showed that 71% of respondents said that they have trust and confidence in American teachers still. However, when asked about the teacher unions, Only 47%, actually 47% said they believe the unions have hurt education compared to only 26% believing that unions have helped education. So we've got to work hard to separate uh, this this synonymous uh, connection of unions and public education and get back to just uh, teachers and helping teachers to do what we do best. Do you think there's a level at which the, the black eye... That has come, and again, I agree with you. I think a lot of the anger, the frustration, has been misdirected. But do you think there's a level, Gary, that a degree to which the black eye that has been given to education by the unions is deservedly? Sure, absolutely. When when you just follow the the takeover of public education by the unions uh, since nineteen the mid nineteen sixties on, I mean, I, I just want to go back for a second, even. Even then, when it started to happen, when the unions started taking over public education, uh, even leaders of the NEA thought that was a bad idea. I mean, in a, in a Nostradamus uh, moment in 1968, the former NEA executive secretary, uh, Dr. Bill Carr, William Carr, warned the convention members at the NEA convention that this would someday lead to to, to, to destroy the confidence of the public in, in education. Well, i got to tell you, because, and, I, and I asked that question, uh, Gary, not, not to necessarily throw uh, stones, but uh, years ago I obtained a copy of a publication that was produced by the NEA and the California Teachers Association entitled Guidelines for Academic Freedom in the Public Schools. And when I read what the union thinks about conservatives and uh, those that are concerned about getting their children a, a quality-based education that still protects the, 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 the mores of the family uh, and who the union considers to be their enemy. I was appalled. And I thought, you know, you're, you're painting the majority of the parents 
that send their kids to your schools as the enemy here, uh, and they're not the enemy. If anything, I think the perception by a lot of parents who really understand the agendizing of education that's been perpetrated by the unions, as, as the unions being the real enemy of both teachers and students in education. Absolutely. There, there is so much evidence just following. There's a wonderful book written by Dr. Um, Dennis Cuddy, C-U-D-D-Y, of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, some, some years back. He was working in the uh, Reagan administration, I believe. Could have been, could have been a George Bush senior, but I think it was Reagan. And he, did, he just uh, was flabbergasted when he started uh, coming up against some of the education reform initiatives that the Department of Education was trying to put out and then seeing the pushback from the, from the NEA in particular. The AFT was there as well, pushing back. But he started investigating the history of why they would be so against reforms that would be in the best interest of teachers and especially kids. And he discovered that they have an agenda that has nothing to do with educating our children and has very little to do with actually protecting and helping our teachers. It's all about changing, transforming this country from a republic into a socialist nation. And if you and you you think we overspeak this, but we can give you the booklets and we can show you from our own research, actual document that we produce called Powerful Failure, how the National Education Association fails to use its influence for education to show you that their agenda has nothing to do with education and very little to do with helping teachers. Oh, I tell you what, uh, Gary, you're preaching to the choir here. I don't think you overspeak it. If anything, I might suggest maybe you underspeak it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the agenda that is promoted by the unions that actually is sole and separate from the agenda supported by most, you know, rank-and-file teachers are, are miles apart. You know, it's interesting because I have long believed that, that education is a partnership, that it ought to be a, a dual responsibility between the parents and the teachers. I don't think that parents ought to just dump their kids on uh, public educators and expect them to come back, you know, after a six or seven hour study day. Uh, brilliant. Uh, there's no accountability. There's no effort put in oftentimes by parents today. And I think that's a dirty shame. And I think the poor performance numbers that we're seeing in many of our schools across the country, the, the responsibility of which needs to be borne out by both the teachers and the parents. That said, I have often wondered why so much pushback by the unions. Hello, CTA, are you listening? Why so much pushback by the unions to create any kind of system of accountability? I've got to tell you, one of the most dangerous things, I think, to public education or the success thereof today is this whole idea of tenure and the idea that just by the amount of time in service, you somehow magically reach the location or, or, or the position in your scholastic career as an educator where you're now exempt from any level of accountability, that you no longer ought to fear a lack of performance performance uh, you know, that doesn't happen in the private sector. If I don't perform at my job, the boss will come in one day and say, you got to straighten up and fly right, or guess what? There's 10 other talk show hosts sitting behind you that would be happy to have your job. Why do the unions t- think that teachers ought to be exempt from that level of accountability? Well, Craig, uh, you'll be, first of all, you'll be happy to know that it's the union's agenda. It's not necessarily a teacher's agenda. I, our own surveys have indicated that our membership, which you have to understand our members would be people that are looking for an alternative, a professional alternative to labor unions, so they would have a different point of view. But these are top teachers. These are national teachers of the year. These are good people. And they would agree that our, our last survey showed that 
of uh, our members thought that the Colorado policy, the new policy for teachers in that state, where teachers can lose tenure if they're deemed ineffective for two consecutive years, our guys, by a vast majority, thought that's a good idea. I mean, there's, there should be no job for life, especially if it has nothing to do, especially if you're a poor performer. I mean, it's just, so you'll be happy to know that many, many, many teachers agree with that. Well, I know that some that have told me and confided in me privately have said, you know, there's there's nothing worse for our profession than those who are tenured, who have given up, who maybe should never have been in the profession in the first place, and as a result of their protected status by the unions, ultimately drag everybody down. You know, that notion of one bad apple ruins the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Well, remember, the union's job is to protect jobs. That's their job. And their, their goal uh, is to make sure that uh, legislatively across the country, as in California, this is a constant battle in states across the country, 27 states in this nation, the unions, like in California, are allowed to take dues from teachers' paychecks, whether the teachers want to have be represented by that union or not. See, I'm, I'm comfortable with the role of unions in collective bargaining and protecting, you know, teachers' rights and teachers' benefits and, and you know, uh, work labor, uh, labor hours and things of that sort. I'm fine for all of that. Uh, my problem, Gary, is when the so-called interests of the union or interests of the teachers are now running contrarian to what is in the best interest of the parents and their students, because in the end, teachers have to realize these kids don't belong to you. And the minute you think that you've got so-called academic freedom to begin teaching a standard or a moral that runs contrary to what is taught in my household, we got a big problem. That's right. Well, change is only going to come when enough of America's teachers wake up to the fact that being inextricably linked to labor unions will never allow them to get the kind of respect and rewards they seek. And put it another way, here's the bottom line. Teachers will never get the pay they deserve if they continue to be linked with organized labor. All right, I want you to stop on that for a moment, Gary, because I have got the 64,000, oh, it's more than that. It's got so many zeros behind it. The question is unbelievable. I have a question for you that I have yet to have a professional educator ever be able to answer for me. Maybe it's going to be a first here on Lifeline. We're talking with Gary Becker, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. Bit of a different tone, as you perhaps detect, from what has been the typical dialogue with representatives of the CTA or the NEA for some inexplicable reason who will no longer come on this program. Don't know why. We'll, t- <laughs> we'll see if Gary's still on the line when we come back after the... Nah, he's brave. I'll be good to you, Gary, but I got a question I think you'll find fascinating. Let's come back with more of our conversation right around the corner. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. All right, Gary, did I lose you? No, I'm here. You're still I'm there. A bra- you're a brave man, Gary. All right. Here, here, multiple choice. here is the question that uh, multiple presidents of the California Teachers Association on this program have refused or been unable to answer. Um, and we even had a spokesperson from the NEA, the national level, uh, not, not answer either. All we ever hear when we talk about budget cuts and trying to manage the budget, in a state like California, for example, 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education. 
Okay, so if we have a $110 billion budget this year, $55 billion is going singularly to education. We think about everything the state of California does, and 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education, and then our kids cross the uh, the stage there when they receive their diploma and can't even read the diploma. We know something's wrong. Here's my question for you. California, on average, and, and, and we're going to be generous, kind of work with me here for a moment with the numbers, Gary. California, on average, is spending about $10,000 per student. Can we agree to that? Yeah. And on average, most classrooms have about about 30 students. Would you agree? A little less than that. A little less than that, but, but, but ballparkish. Yeah. All right. So if it's 10,000 per students and about 30, st- let's, let's tell you what, we'll go with a smaller number. We'll say 25 students. So $10,000 per student and 25 students per classroom, that means $250,000 by my math. Am I right? Yes. Okay. $250,000. Would I be overly generous, Gary, if I said that $50,000 was going to the educator's salary? I. Uh, that's low for California. That's low for California. All right. So what are they making? Sixty thousand. Sixty-four average. Sixty-four thousand. Yep. Average. Uh, all right. Sixty-four thousand. So let, let, let's let's just take it over the top. We're, we're going to say uh, approximately uh, after we've paid the teacher who's earning an average of about sixty-four thousand dollars. We'll do some round numbers here. A uh, one hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars of the two hundred and fifty thousand per classroom that we began with is left over. Can you explain to me where is that money going? <laughs> so this is a true-false question, or this is, you actually want to know where the money is? I want to know where the money is going, because I have yet, even Jack O'Donnell, our former superintendent of public instruction, when I challenged him on this thing, I said, you were constantly asking for more money. Our teachers are typically underpaid for what they have to put up with, the hours that they put in, and the vast responsibility that they have. Look, I think most of you ought to be paid $100,000 a year, no questions asked. Right. But then, as we're constantly hearing the unions beg for more money, more money, more money, more money, I've got to wonder, where is all of this money going? If it's not going to the teachers, and in many areas of the state, we own the buildings outright, how are we managing to spend $185,000 per classroom that's not going to the teachers? Okay, well, I've got an answer for you, but it was a long question, so you have to give me a minute to develop it. All yours. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that as an educator organization, uh, we would agree, uh, we obviously agree that an educated public is the most important factor in maintaining our republic. Uh, so we would agree that, to pour, we would agree to pour more money into the system if, and here's the big caveat, if it could be guaranteed that that money would actually reach the classrooms for teachers' salaries and student materials and, and conditions, et cetera, and not be gobbled up by the bureaucratic blob controlling our public education system today. Now, let me give you an example by way of New Jersey, a new film, what's happening, which underscore what's happening in California and where that money goes. In New Jersey, there was a new uh, documentary that just came out on the heels of another great documentary called Waiting for Superman, uh, and this one's called The Cartel. And it shows what's happening in New Jersey, which is, Absolutely a, correlate, a, a you know, corollary with what's happening in California and in other large uh, states uh, where the unions are holding sway. And that is it showed that there are over 400 
school administrators in Newark, one city, that made at least $100,000 a year. 400 administrators in Newark that made at least $100,000 a year. Not one teacher made $100,000 a year. So this whole system is so upside down that the money goes into a black hole, but it's kind of an inverted pyramid, and it stays at the top. By the way, these union leaders that never will come on, they won't talk about this either because these are some of the highest paid guys in the state. And that's off the backs of teachers' dues, which comes out of taxpayer money as well, as you know. So the money goes down a black hole, and it's called the bureaucratic blob. We have more administrators in jobs doing nothing. We don't even make some of these administrators even step foot in the classroom and teach anymore. That are It's just like our United States government. We have... What was it? By the year 2025, there are going to be more people in the Department of Agriculture than there are going to be farmers. Well, that's what's happening to our public education system today. Let me interrupt you, Gary, and say what a breath of fresh air. You have done. You've gone where no man has dared to go before. You have finally... I knew the answer, by the way. I was waiting for an educator to finally have the guts to articulate the answer. California, and this is not real recent information, but some of the research that we have done, when you look at the layers of bureaucracy, as we have, you know, the local board of of education, and then we got the state board of education, and then we got the feds on top of that, and everybody having something to say, on average, we're looking at three people collecting a salary in the state of California attached to education for every one actual educator in the classroom. Yeah. I tell you what, Gary, that's not wrong. That's criminal. It is criminal. And the fact that you've got administrators that are these these glorified paper pushers right. that add nothing, not one iota of quality to a child's education. Sorry for those of you that do it and are listening right now. You can send me the hate email later. Not one, adding one iota of a caliber of education in the classroom to any of our kids. You know what? I tell you... I could free up money to increase teacher salaries overnight. We would deal with the lack of school materials and books and and overcrowded classrooms overnight. I would go through and lock, stock, and barrel, number one, we don't need three letters of administrators telling the teachers what to do. Look, let a local school board make the decisions, the state level, the feds, goodbye, you're out of business, gone. And this whole idea of three administrators for every one classroom teacher, flip that around. If you flip it around, I'm okay with that. I wish that your colleagues would have the guts to go publicly with this crime that is being perpetrated on taxpayers and parents and students and pull back the covers you just did now here on radio and, 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 and let everybody know that what is fundamentally wrong with education today is the stranglehold the unions have on the teachers and the stranglehold that the bureaucracy has on education. I couldn't have said it better, and apparently it's a good answer. So do I get $64,000? You know what? If, if you work with us to get edu- more people educated in this arena, Gary, absolutely, and then some. Hey, we're out of time. I want to have you back on, Gary. I'm sorry we're out of time here. We're going to get you scheduled on earlier next time on the program. Um, I like this organization. And finally, somebody that knows how to tell the truth. American Association of Educators, aaeteachers.org. If you're a teacher, find out more about them. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.